Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? All right. Yeah, we'll try it again. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? That's better. So in 1823, there was a British teenager named William Webb Ellis who was playing a game of football or soccer for us Americans at his school. And he was a super competitive kid who was willing to bend the rules if they would help him win. One classmate described him as rather inclined to take unfair advantage at football. And on this day, that inclination got the best of him. His team desperately needed a goal. And so at one point, Ellis just caught the ball out of midair, ran past a couple of defenders, and drop kicked it into the back of the net. Any soccer player in the room can tell you that's an infraction that will get you kicked out of the game, leave your team one person down on the field, and also disqualify the goal you scored from even counting. So not Ellis's finest moment. But there are a few people watching that day who thought, why not let the players pick up the ball and run with it? And then they talked to Ellis and he's like, yeah, this is a good idea. And they started to develop some new rules about how to play football. And and his school kind of developed a different game. And the name of that school, Rugby School in Rugby, Warwickshire, England. And within a few decades, his version of the game had spread all around the country to the point that they had to make a distinction between rugby football and association football or soccer. And still today, the world championships for rugby are called the William Webb Ellis Cup. It's kind of cool. And it's amazing because like, even though we don't know a ton about rugby here in the United States, at least most of us, we know about what it produced. Within a few decades, rugby football had made its way across the pond. And then a guy named Walter Camp changed some of the rules and gave us the sport we call football. That's why we call it football, because it weirdly evolved from British football. And it's crazy to think about this, but it's entirely possible that there would be no Friday Night Lights, no Rose Bowl, Cotton Bowl, Sugar Bowl, or Super Bowl, no NFL playoffs to go home and watch this afternoon if it hadn't been for the stupid act of an impetuous teenager desperate to win two centuries ago. Like this, this thing that in the moment seemed like a really bad choice turned into something that, at least as a huge football fan, I think was just glorious for the future of the world. And there's a word for that, redemption. Redemption. William Webb Ellis's selfish act was redeemed in the long view of things as it gifted the world with the sport of football. And not only was his petulant moment redeemed, God also redeemed his dirty, cheating soul because he became a preacher. And it's fun to look back at stories like that and smile. But I think when it comes to our own lives, our own mistakes, our own regrets, it's really difficult to believe that God could possibly do anything similar with them. It's hard to believe they could be redeemed. We kicked off this Fresh Start series last week by talking about how all of us have regrets and they land basically in three different barrels. Regrets of action, the things we did that we desperately wish we could go back in time and erase from our stories. 
regrets of inaction, the things that we didn't do, the opportunities we missed out on, the chances we didn't take that leave us asking, what if? And then regrets of reaction, times we were hurt, lied to, abused, lied about, or damaged by other people that we desperately wish we'd never suffered. And no matter which barrel or barrels all of your regrets fall in, it's incredibly difficult in the myopia of any moment we exist in to believe that those regrets could be redeemed. Like the shattered space we inhabit leaves us constantly thinking that our worst moments are like the end of our story or at least the defining characteristic of it. There's no way we could move forward in a way that those bad things become good. But what if I told you that doesn't have to be the case? What if your regrets don't get the last word? What if all they ever get is the chance to be the first sentence of your next chapter? Because that's actually a promise God makes us. In his letter to the church at Rome, chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writes some words that are incredibly famous. If you're a churchy person, if you grew up in or around church here today, you've probably heard them. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. It's this incredible promise, but it's also a verse that I call a blessing box verse. It's one that Christians tend to clip entirely out of context and throw in a little box somewhere so they can pull it out anytime they want to feel like life is just going to be peaceful and hashtag blessed. But that's not what this is talking about. It's not saying all things are always good for those who follow him. Like if you just give your life to Jesus and you do what God says, he owes you a perfect life and so you're just always gonna be peaceful and happy and everything's gonna go great. Now, now this says it all. It says we know. Not we think, not we hope, not we suspect that possibly we know that in all things, not some things, not a certain set of things, not a few things, not good things, not bad things, not past things, not future things, all things, we know that in all things, God works for the good, not the comfort, not the preferences, not the ease, not the happiness, the good. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Not everybody. Outside of Jesus, some things are just bad and they just accomplish bad. But we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, the good of his people, those who've surrendered their lives and futures to him saying, maybe you can do more with this than I can. You guys, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the hands of Jesus, even the ugliest moments of our lives can become things that produce beauty in us. That's what Paul promises. And it's it's mind-blowing, perspective-shifting stuff to think about. Because in the end, whatever or whoever caused the pain, frustration, and brokenness in your life, what we know is that God is ultimately weaving that into a tapestry. And someday you're going to be able to look back. And even though you'll still call a tragedy a tragedy and a mistake a mistake, you'll say, wow, look what God did with that. I never thought anything good could come of that. But look what God did. See how he redeemed it. And that's what God does because God never wastes a hurt. My friend Brenda Benny says that. If you've been around revision for any length of time, you've heard me say it before and you'll hear me say it again. God never wastes a hurt. That's an incredible promise that we get to hang on to that actually allows us to get a fresh start in the places we need one. But as we talk about getting a fresh start in 2023 and about this promise God makes us in Romans 8, 28, I think there are a couple critical things we need to understand. And the first one is this. Redemption is a God thing, not a me thing. 
God is the one who's doing all the working of the bad things for good, not me. I'm the one who broke my life. I can't be the one who fixes it. Like my best thinking got me here, which means experiencing the fullness of God's redemption requires a little bit of humility on my part. It means coming with open hands and saying, God, I cannot release myself from the chains I chose. You know, the word we translate redemption in English and Greek is this compound word, apolutrosis. And apo is the preposition from. Lutrosis was a word that meant to buy back. It was used to describe the process of buying back the freedom of a slave. And so apolutrosis, redemption, is the buying back from. That's exactly what God does for us. He buys back our lives. He buys back our futures. He buys back our freedom from hopelessness and from the prison of our past. And the second thing we got to understand about how this Romans 8, 28 promise works is that redemption requires taking the long view. It'd be really cool if this like God working stuff out for good worked like a TV show, right? And everything got neatly wrapped by the end of the 30 minute episode, but it's not like that at all. And if we're really going to believe this promise rather than kind of sarcastically pray it at God with a little bit of anger in our souls, which I have done from time to time, you're like, oh, you work all things for good, huh? This is a thing and it's not very good. But that's short-sighted. I've been there and we've all been there. And so if we're going to believe this promise, if we're going to live into all that it means for us, we got to recognize that the way we perceive things right now is not the same way we will look back and perceive them in the future. And we know that's true. All of us have examples of that. And I think one of the best real life examples of how this plays itself out is the story of Joseph that we find in Genesis chapters 30 through 50. And here's the, the short-ish version of that 20 chapter section of Joseph's life. He was born with 10 older brothers and one older sister. And he was immediately his dad Jacob's favorite kid because he was the first kid born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And all of us sitting in here with siblings know how intense sibling rivalry can get sometimes. But it's especially hard with parents who play favorites. My parents pretended they didn't, stupid James. But like, whatever. Like, we know how it gets. And so, like, Joseph's siblings, they were already a little frustrated with the affection that Jacob was showering on their brother. And then Jacob made him this special coat. And they got real jealous of his fashion. Like, God, it's so many colors. Which... I gotta be real, for a bunch of like manly nomad shepherd dudes was probably not their most masculine moment. Like, I wish I had his coat, but whatever. They got jealous of it and Joseph could have been cool about it, but instead he just leaned in hard. He had multiple conversations with his brothers where he told them like, hey, I had this dream where you guys were all like bowing down to me (laughs) because I am much awesomer than you. And they appreciated that so much that they threw him in a well which was actually pretty charitable because while he was approaching, they decided it's either throw him in a well or murder him. So all things considered in context, that was a cool thing for them to do. And then they looked at each other and they were like, hey, let's be even more good of guys because they saw this caravan traveling to Egypt and they're like, we could let him starve to death in the hole or we could pull him out and make a buck and sell him into slavery. So they did. Then they poured goat blood all over his cool coat and told their dad he must have got eaten by a wild animal. And Joseph got the opportunity to be a slave. Now these dreams God had given him about who he was, about the future God had for him, 
They could have and should have been shared differently with his family. But the truth was God had gifted him and created him for a life that was more than the life of a slave. He was an incredible leader. And so pretty quickly, he rose through the ranks to become like the the chief slave. He was in charge of basically everything in his master's house. And it almost seemed like God was redeeming his regret and the brokenness of his story right here until like, his master's wife noticed that he was a strong, handsome young guy and she tried to seduce him and Joseph refused. He, he ran away in the other direction and she got mad so she lied and said he had tried to assault her, which infuriated his master who threw him into jail. And just for frame of reference, when we say jail, it wasn't like a nice, cushy, white collar facility. It was a dungeon. Joseph was a dungeon prisoner. But the thing is, God had actually gifted him and created him for more than the empty, meaningless life of a jailbird. And so he was such a good prisoner, he pretty quickly rose through the ranks to the point where he was in charge of basically everything in the prison. And then these two guys got thrown into the dungeon because there had been an assassination attempt on Pharaoh's life. And he was trying to figure out kind of what happened and who was responsible. And they both had dreams that haunted them. And no one knew what they meant. And Joseph was like, well, I can pray and ask God what they mean. And he was able to tell them the meaning of their dreams. One, that the guy was, was guilty and Pharaoh was going to assassinate him, cut off his head and impale it on a pole. That'd be fun to hear. Like, what did this dream mean? You're a dead guy. But the other guy is like, hey, Pharaoh's going to restore you to your position as his cupbearer. It's going to happen soon. And that guy was so fired up. He's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. When this happens, I'm not going to forget you. I'm going to get you out of here. And it seemed like in that moment, God was maybe redeeming his regret and the broken moments of his story until that guy forgot. Old Joe rotting away in prison was just an afterthought once he got his life back. And Joseph remained in the dungeon for two more years. At this point, he was 30 years old. And it had been 13 years since the day his life was derailed. Since the instant that fostered regret in his mind every single day. 13 years since he was thrown into slavery. And every day of those 13 years, believe it, he had regrets of action. And I wish I would have treated my brothers differently. I wish I wouldn't have said what I said the way that I said it. He had regrets of inaction. Why didn't I tell him what my master's wife was up to? Why, why didn't I run away when I got the chance? Why couldn't I have been more persuasive when they were trying to sell me? Like, what if I had done things differently? What if? And he absolutely had regrets of reaction. What my brothers did to me was not okay. It was sinful and awful and disgusting. I shouldn't be in jail because someone tried to assault me and then lied to me about it. What everyone has done to me is not okay. 13 years, Joseph ruminated on that stuff until one day, Pharaoh had a crazy dream and it was haunting him and no one in Egypt could tell him what it meant. And finally, the light went on for the cupbearer who was like, oh yeah, the prison guy. (laughs) I was gonna get him out. Hey, Pharaoh, maybe this dude I met in prison could tell you. And so Pharaoh pulls Joseph out of prison and Joseph prays and is able to tell him the meaning of this dream that Egypt's gonna have seven incredible years of crops and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's not a bad leader. He's not an idiot. He's like, you know, we should probably do something about that then if bad years are coming. But who even knows how to lead that? Dream guy. You seem kind of smart. You talk to God. You want to be in charge of it? So Joe got a job. Turns out he was really good at his job. And pretty quickly, he ascended to the point where he was the second most powerful person next to Pharaoh himself in the most prosperous, powerful 
nation on planet earth. And because of his leadership, Egypt was able during the good years, not only to store up enough grain that they could feed their own people, but they were able to store up enough grain that they could sell it and feed people from all around the world who were hungry during the middle of the famine. People like, oh, Joseph's brothers who showed up one day. Joseph is standing there selling grain, managing the affairs of Egypt, and his brothers stroll into the courtyard of the building he's working. And they don't recognize him because A, they probably figured he was still a slave or he was dead at this point. B, he was clean-shaven and dressed like an Egyptian. And C, it had been just a smidge over 20 years since they sold him on the side of a road. I don't want to press pause right here and ask us to imagine what it must have been like to be Joseph in that moment. You're standing here and you watch these people who have been awful to you stroll in needy, desperate for the grain that exists only because of your leadership. And you have the ability to throw them in prison, to sell them into slavery, to send them away empty-handed or to kill them and no one's gonna bat an eye. You said they're spies, execute them. Everyone will do what you say. You have all the power. What would you have done if you were in Joseph's shoes? Like seriously, think about it. If you lived a life with as many regrets and, and as deep of regrets as Joseph had in that moment and you watched them walk in, what would you have done? Because I think the truth is the answer to that question, what would you have done, depends almost entirely on whether you actually believe that God works all things out for the good of those who love him or you don't. Because if you don't believe it, if you don't believe redemption's possible, it's almost impossible to release your regrets. You're like, what could possibly happen with them? I have to cling to them. And you hold them so tightly for so long that eventually they're holding you. But if you do believe that God actually is a God of redemption, then you can experience the same thing Joseph experienced. He changed the course of world history 3,700 years ago because he knew something about who God was and who God created him to be. And if we're gonna get a fresh start in 2023, we gotta understand both of these things as well. The first one is this, God does his best work in your worst moments. Like your worst moments are the spaces that provide God the opportunity to do his greatest work in you. It's really easy, I think, when we're suffering, when we're sitting in pain, to feel like we need something more than we're getting and to open our eyes to the movement of God. But it's in our good moments, when, when things are going fine, when, when we seem to be rolling along, that we miss it. We, we don't have the lens to see what he's doing to prop us up and propel us forward behind the curtain of our lives. And so sometimes it takes those bad moments for us to realize that he is working in our stories every single moment of every single day. He never wastes a hurt. He sets all the bad things right. And to be clear, that doesn't mean all bad things are good. It doesn't mean every cloud has a silver lining and bad is really just good in disguise. I think in some circles of Christianity, we hear that like saccharine view. And when we get this idea that I got to put on my happy face when I go to church, because if God is in charge, then everything's good all the time. That's such a load of garbage. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Bad things are bad. God hates bad things. God hates bad things so much, they break his heart so deeply that he actually stepped out of eternity and gave his life to redeem the bad stuff. Bad things aren't good things. And they weren't in the life of Joseph. It wasn't like he saw his brother stroll in and he was like, oh, wow, 
look what God is doing. I'm actually glad I got to be a slave. That was pretty fun. It's a good time. The dungeon was neat, you know. I knew what darkness looked like. It wasn't that. Like when they walked in, Joseph lost it. He was a wreck because of his regret. He ran away and he hid in this room and started ugly crying so loud that people could hear it. And they're like, what is going on, Joe? It's not okay. Like bad things aren't good things. The bad in his life was still bad. But as he wept in that room and brought it before the Lord, he realized something. He said, God, you didn't leave me there. You didn't allow these bad moments to be the end of my story. You didn't allow them to rob me of the future and the meaning and the purpose you had for me. I don't think it's so cool because the way God redeemed Joseph's story made a difference not just in his life, but in the lives of countless people all across the globe who ate in a time of famine because he was a brilliant leader, including his brothers. It saved the life, not only of Joseph, but the life of his brothers. Which leads to the second thing Joseph understood that created the conditions in which his story could be redeemed is this. Forgiveness is the road that leads to freedom. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. Forgiveness is the road that leads to freedom. There's no way around this. The only way that we can see our regrets released and redeemed is to ask for forgiveness from the people we've hurt and to extend it to the people who've hurt us. And that's so hard to do because we live in the middle of this culture that invites us constantly and even expects us to do the exact opposite, especially in the middle of 2023 cancel culture. It has all of the rules and none of the redemption. Because if we play by the world's rules, all we're ever going to get is the world's results. I think Tolkien illustrated that really powerfully in The Lord of the Rings. The Dark Lord Sauron created this, this great ring of power. But the paradox of its power was that if you took it from him and you used it even against him, if you put it on and used it to fight for justice and to fight for what's right against Sauron, you would be so corrupted by it that eventually you'd become just like Sauron. Because we can't use the world's methods without becoming exactly like our world. We can't cling to bitterness and anger without ending up in the same spot everyone around us who are clinging to bitterness and anger ends up, imprisoned by the brokenness of our past. We can't repay evil with evil without losing even more of ourselves than somebody already stole. And I know that's a hard thing to hear and even think about in the context of our pain because we don't want to forgive. But the good news is it's actually a really encouraging thing to think about in the context of the pain we've caused to others. It's like, it's really nice to believe that people we've hurt should practice forgiveness, right? Because like, have any of you ever killed your neighbor's pet? When I was 16, I just got my license and these little kids next door owned a bunny. Um, I'm just kidding. I didn't run over a rabbit. That'd be so bad. But I did forget to feed my friend's pet fish once while he studied abroad for a semester. It did not go good for the fish. He wasn't too mad at me though, because I think we were both just glad he didn't ask me to feed a pet horse. You can't flush that down the toilet. It's a whole different ordeal. I think I never buried a dead horse. But anyway, forgiveness is the pathway that leads to freedom. And Joseph recognized that. He wasn't going to let his regrets ruin his life. He knew 
He served the God who was in the redemption business. And so he forgave his brothers. I mean, he messed with them a little bit first, like just confused them and made them think they were going to die, which was a practical joke. Like his, his youngest brother, Benjamin, who was his only full brother from his mother, Rachel, like wasn't with him. And he wanted to see Benjamin. So he told his brothers, you guys are spies. I'm like, murder you. And then they all thought they were going to die. And as a brother myself, I think that's a funny joke. I think that's a good thing, and he should have done it, and it's just, that's how you brother, all right? And it was just for a little bit, and then he forgave them, and he actually invited them to Egypt. He provided them with, with land to raise their families and their flocks, and he got reunited with a father who had assumed he was dead for two decades. It's this beautiful, incredible redemption story for Joseph, but like for, for his 10 big brothers, the story's a little different, because when, when Jacob died, they panicked. They thought, oh man, we're in big trouble. And it's evidence that they'd been hanging on to their regret the entire time. They had never been set free from it. And they're worried like, oh great, because we've allowed this to define our story. Joseph's probably allowing it to still define his. He's mad. And now the dad's daddy's going to murder us. And this is what we read in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? And so they're like, they made something up. They're like, I don't know what to do about this. We're just going to tell them a lie. They're like, ah, Joe, dad said to forgive us. This is his last words, unless you count the gargling sound. Like that was his last words. He's like, forgive your brothers, please. And it says, when the word reached Joseph, he wept. Like they, they came and they threw themselves down before him and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is profound. Don't miss it. His brothers are still so burdened by their past that, that they're defining their story by it and they think it's carried into their future. They're like, oh great, we're gonna get killed. And Joseph looks at them and he he weeps. It breaks his heart because he realizes, oh, they're still not free. And he's been living free because he knows who God is and he knows how God works. And he's seen the redemptive arc of the story God's writing with his life. And so he just tells him, look, you meant it for bad, but God worked it for good. It's one of the most beautiful, incredible verses in the entire Bible. What you intended for bad, God intended for good. God made beauty out of ashes because that's what God does. And it just reminds me of this song by Brandon Lake I heard for the first time a few months ago. He just keeps repeating, what the devil meant for bad, God meant for good. What the devil meant for bad, God meant for good. What the devil meant for bad, God meant for good. And he sings, he thought he stole it from me. Now it's become my testimony. Now you may have walked in here this morning believing that the weight of your past the things you've done, the things you've missed out on, the things that have been done to you robbed you, stole from you the life you desperately wanted and the plans God had for your life. You may have walked in here believing that your worst moments define who you are and write the last chapter of your story, but that's a lie. It's a lie from an enemy who wants to destroy you and steal from you the things God wants to hand to you. You guys, because of who our God is and what our God does, we can know that we know that we know that he is always creating a pathway from the shattered space in which we currently exist to the lives and the futures he has for us.
which means that your regrets don't ever get the last word. All they ever get to be is the first sentence of your next chapter. So the question you got to ask yourself today when it comes to regrets is just this. How far into your future do you want to carry the pain of your past? How far? I mean, you can carry it all the way to the end if you want to. But if you'll trust that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, you can release it. You can walk the road of forgiveness and find freedom, knowing that God is working behind the scenes of your life, that your worst moments are where he does his best work and that redemption is real. And I think if you do that, as we do that, what we'll find is those things we thought were stolen from us, those moments we thought might be the end of our story, the things we most desperately wish we could go back and erase become our testimony. They become the stories we share that make a difference in the lives of other people. Like as we walk this road, what we find is God's meaning and God's hope and God's love and God's purpose. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've never found that, if you've never claimed it for yourself, you can. It's free. All you got to do is surrender and believe. All you got to do is say, God, I give you my life and my future because you can do more with it than I can because I cannot set myself free. And you just got to believe that Jesus stepped out of eternity into the human story and gave his life to pay the price for your sins so you could be forgiven and then unlock death on the inside so you could live free forever. You can claim it. And if you're sitting here and you claimed it this morning, or if you've claimed it in the past, but you've never publicly proclaimed it, good news, we got baptisms coming up next month. Jesus not only invites us, but he commands us to take this faith that we've privately claimed and publicly proclaim it because it makes a difference, not just in our lives, but in the lives of the community. It's this thing that propels the whole church forward. And I'm so excited about baptisms next month. I'd love to give you more information about what they mean, what they look like, how you can be a part. It's going to be a great service as people stand in the public square and declare my life and my future belong to Jesus. I can't wait for that Sunday because we're going to celebrate redemption. Our God is a God of redemption. I mean, if he can take an idiot like William Webb Ellis and turn his cheating into something as glorious as football, he can do something with your story too, all right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the way that you redeem our stories. Thank you for not abandoning us to the brokenness of the spaces we inhabit, the brokenness of our regrets, the things we've done, the things we haven't done, and the things that have happened to us. We're so grateful for who you are and how you love. And I pray for all of us as we face into the very real temptation to have our futures stolen from us by the regrets that are inevitable in this shattered world, that you'd help us fix our eyes on you and that all of us would walk out of here today knowing that we know that we know deep in our souls that you work all things for good of those who love you and that redemption is real. May we be a redemption people who not only live it in our own lives but spread it to a world that's desperate for a message of redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.